0: Well, I'll invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter one, once again. There are obviously lots of different kinds of people in the world. I think we all readily understand this. Uh, But there are those who are prone to think very deeply about various types of matters. uh, To think about, for example, the big questions about life, uh, to to give them consideration and to wrestle with them. Uh, That is life's meaning, uh, where this is all headed, the significance of various actions and events even beyond the present moment, pondering one's own life in light of the bigger picture, in many cases wanting to find a measure of meaning and significance for themselves. Uh, Others are not wired quite the same way, Uh, don't maybe tend to to think about matters in that way. They're content to just, you know, have lunch and then figure out the afternoon after that. Um, But I think regardless, it's safe to say nobody uh, desires or wants a life of insignificance, right? Nobody, I think that's fair to say, nobody's just content to be completely meaningless uh, existence, and so even then, many of the things that we end up doing, often even instinctively, uh, we try to infuse a, a greater sense of significance to our lives as we do these things. Uh, so some people treat social media this way, for example, posting, liking, and retweeting opinions, pictures, and articles, so as to feel that this is an important part of you know, the, the puzzle in accomplishing some greater mission, some great thing, I'm part of some large thing, an important part even, because people want to hear what I have to say, and I know that when, you know, they like it or whatever. Some people treat social media as a stage of sorts, a stage, a platform on which they live life, and uh, again, as people interact and like it and so on, it, it gives a sense of significance. You know, people care, people want to know, even beyond the, the few people physically right around me right now. Now, social media is just one one of many ways that people try to seek significance to their lives. Um, There's endless ways. We can do this through work uh, and so on. It can be an uncomfortable reality to try to examine our own lives in light of the big picture. It can be an uncomfortable experience to examine our actual significance, and contribution to history. Uh, in a world that is obsessed with self-esteem and and the sort of you-can-do-and-be-anything-you-want kind of message, uh, anything that questions this is very much unwelcome. Uh, we don't want to do that. It can be uncomfortable to consider our actual significance and, and contribution to our own society around us, let alone as we step back and consider, the, consider history, all of history, human history. And yet Solomon is going to force this issue upon us as we continue into chapter 1 uh, to examine ourselves in light of the grand scheme of things. Um, so the last time, if you recall, we looked at verses 1 and 2, and we just kind of touched on verse 3, uh, the issue of, of the, the meaning of under the sun. Uh, But today we're going to look in verses 3 to 11. Uh, So we're covering verses 3 to 11, but I do want to back up and read starting in verse 1. So let's read Ecclesiastes chapter 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said? See, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. So in this text, Solomon asks a question that nobody really wants to ask, and then he gives us an answer that nobody really wants to hear. And so that's that's really what our outline is, a question nobody wants to ask and an answer nobody wants to hear. So isn't that an encouraging way to spend your Sunday? Um, I promise we will get to good news, Um, but the fact is the text that we're in today doesn't give us the good news. It prepares us for it, but it doesn't provide the good news for us. So let's begin uh, with a question nobody wants to ask. We find this in verse three. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? What is gained by all this? Uh, So if you remember from last week, this phrase, under the sun, it means the here and now, the world that we experience every day. And the question here is, what is gained by all of this labor and toiling that we do while we live this earthly life? Uh, the word gain is an economic word referring to that which is left over. Its Profit would be another way to translate it. The preacher is asking, what is the profit of all of this labor that we do during our lives? At the end of it all, what will I have to show for it? What is man left with at the end of his life? What's carried over? And this, this question, this phrasing it this way, this, this word toil, reminds us of Genesis 3 after the fall in verses 17 to 19 where Adam is cursed with a, a hard life of labor. Right now, now the, the creation itself is cursed along with Adam and Eve after sin. And the earth itself is going to make Adam's work of subduing it a frustration as it produces thorns and so on. It is indeed a life of toil since the fall, since the entrance of sin. And Solomon asks here at the end of it all, what have we gained? What have we profited? Again, it's not a nice thing to consider. I don't really want to think about all that. Uh, Who wants to consider the hours spent laboring, in some cases, to just make it through, to just survive, to be able to eat? Who wants to consider that and all the busyness, the time spent doing kind of whatever work and then, you know, consider with that the overall kind of meagerness of my contribution to the world. At the end of it all, what's left? What have I done? And this question about toil and its place, all this work that we do as we live under the sun, this is something that he's going to return to throughout the book as he raises it here. So again, we live, I think, you know, this is self-evident, I trust. We live in a, a very distracted age, a distracted age that kind of keeps us from often, keeps us from considering this kind of question. Although I I suspect um, that this question does still gnaw at a lot of people and perhaps explains why so many are depressed, as we are continually told and reminded. That even with all of the sort of numbing and busyness, uh, there's still this nagging, what's going on here? And what's the point of all of this? Where's this all going? What's the gain from all of this? Now, of course, we're in verse 3. If you remember... Verse 2 is really Solomon's text for the book, his main text as he preaches his sermon. So we've already seen that he has declared all is vanity. It's like a vapor. This life is like a vapor. And now he asks, what gain is there from our toil under the sun? And we know, we know already what his answer is going to be, even before we read on. And this does lead us into the second point. Uh, which where we'll stay for a little while here, an answer that nobody wants to hear. Uh, we know what his answer is, don't we, before we even continue to verse 4. What's gained? His answer is nothing. And this is, this is basically the answer we're, we, we are afraid of, right? We don't really want to think about this because we're, there's a part of us that's a little concerned that the answer is nothing. Nothing. Just give me something that will numb the pain. Just distract me. But Solomon's making us consider this. The short answer is nothing's gained, But he has more to say to help us grasp that in the grand scheme of things, life in a fallen world is repetitive. It is fleeting and it accomplishes very little. So let's look at this. uh, Verse 4. He says, A generation goes and a generation comes but the earth remains forever. There's a cycle here. Generations of human beings coming and going. And if you just, the, the brevity of that statement is kind of eerie, I, I would suggest. In the two seconds, I don't even think it takes two seconds to say that statement. A generation goes and a generation comes. In just that, that simple statement, you imagine Whole generations rising up, living their lives, interacting, and then gone. And then it happens again, and then they're gone. And again, and again. This fleeting, passing nature of life is brought before us, even just in the simplicity of what he says here, how how straightforward and basic and quickly he's able to get that idea out generation goes and a generation comes and then there's a contrast raised here these generations of man rise up and then they fall away but the earth remain remains on it just continues earth watches as men just come and go we live our lives and then are gone one writer says no doubt it the earth will see the last of us off the scene and what will amount what will man amount to then Another commentator notes that there's a sense of indifference here of the universe to our presence. It was here before we came and it will be here unchanged after we've gone. It remains. We just kind of, we come and we go. And within this repetitive cycle of generations, you and I come along and take our place. And if our entire generation comes and goes with little to nothing to show for it, then what of my individual contribution to all of this? This is the inescapable question. Solomon continues, verses 5 to 7, where he examines the earth a little more closely. It remains, yes, it just continues on, yet it too is subject to repetitive cycles of its own that really don't seem to accomplish a whole lot. And they serve here as illustrations for life. So look at verse 5. He says, the sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. That word hastens is the word for uh, panting or gasping. So this picture is, again, he's looking at things from our perspective. Earth, the sun rises and sets. And then he says it's like hustling to get back to the starting point again and do it all again the next day. And this just continuously happens over and over again. It's never done. It's this picture of a tired sun. Now, we know that the sun technically does not move, um, but we still use this language today, even though we know this, right? The sunrise, sunset. It disappears at the end of the day, and then sure enough, there it is again, in the east, to our east, the next morning. So this picture is just this repetition, and just, it never ends. in sort of this exhausting repetition. What's accomplished by this? And verse six, similarly, the wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuit, the wind returns. I think we of all people understand this, especially in the spring. This present moment, a, a, a wonderful exception. It's windy all day. But hopefully, maybe, it'll die down in the evening. And sure enough, it does, and it's great. And then you wake up in the morning, and what's back? The wind again. More wind. It's constant. Verse 7 continues, All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. Now, this is not just referring, it's not simply talking about the water cycle, but it's reinforcing this sense of accomplishing nothing. The rivers never stop flowing. There's always water running. And it all empties into the sea, but the sea never fills up. There's no noticeable change. Despite what doomsday people say, the sea never fills up. And the water just keeps flowing. Again, it's an illustration of accomplishing nothing. Futility, really. Uh, I've, I've stood a number of times at Niagara Falls. You can get right where the water falls over the edge. You can get... Actually, disturbingly close to it, and see it. And uh, from what I read, there's three thousand tons of water every single second that falls over those those falls. Three thousand tons. I don't know that. I don't know how to picture that really. Uh, that would be a big tank, I guess. But it's three thousand tons per second falling over. And yet, day after day, week after week, month after month, it just continues. 3,000 tons, oh, there's 3,000 more, and it just keeps happening, keeps going. Down below, it doesn't fill up. It just runs off somewhere else, and it's just continuing. All this stuff. For what? Well, people show up to see it, but really, what's it accomplishing? Right? That area below doesn't fill up. Water never stops coming. It's just a visual, an illustration of busyness that really doesn't accomplish anything in the grand scheme of things. It's just constantly flowing. This is what he's getting at. And then at the beginning of verse eight, he draws a conclusion from verses five to seven. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. You can sense the exasperation of it. There are wearisome cycles that just repeat themselves and accomplish very little in the end. They just keep going and going. Solomon is now turning here in verse eight from the natural world Back to man. Man cannot, there's nothing to say in response to this. This weariness of viewing everything just round and round with nothing to show for it. It's just on and on and on. It just stays. It just keeps going. Nothing's accomplishing. What's going on? It's unutterably exhausting is what he's saying. Now, this might seem a little bit harsh, or maybe a little bit too much. Just Solomon, take it easy. Just relax. Enjoy the scene, maybe. Well, remember, he's, he's talking here about the big picture. Purpose, meaning. What's this all about? What's this for? And as he looks out into the natural world, he just sees these endless cycles that don't seem to, in the end, accomplish themselves. They just repeat themselves. And if you're searching for meaning and you look out and see this, it just becomes a weariness. Even if it looks nice to the eye, there's no real point to it. And this is serving as an illustration of, of life generations go and they come
1: whatever meaning even an
0: individual moment might have at the end of it all what have you gained this is what he's asking so what in the end and he continues describing mankind's condition mankind's place within this exhausting world in verse 8b, second part of verse 8, the eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Very literally, these statements are true. The eye is never done seeing. Now, certain exceptions notwithstanding, uh, when the eye is properly functioning, it's never done. As long as the eye works as it ought to, it never, it's never done looking at stuff. It's never finished. It's never satisfied with what it sees. Same with the ear. It's always hearing. There's always sound entering into it. So this is literally very true. The ears and eyes are never satisfied. And yet again, this is also an illustration. This is true as a comment on human nature. We're never satisfied. There's always something more that we're pursuing and chasing after. And he's going to come back to this. Chapter four, he says this about the pursuit of wealth. He says, again, I saw vanity under the sun. This is chapter four, verse seven. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling or depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. So like the continual Sunrise and sunset. We toil and chase after riches and, and add to that various other pursuits and yet are never satisfied. Proverbs twenty-seven twenty, Sheol and Abaddon, death, are never satisfied and never satisfied are the eyes of man. Again, always looking for the next thing. Unrest, discontent. There's busyness to our lives, but never arrival. And finally, at the end, no ultimate profit. The streams just keep flowing, but the sea is never full. We just keep busyness, and then it's over. The end comes, and so it's not just that we are caught living in a world of futility and with these endless cycles that he's talked about, but our very nature. He's saying is one that's never fully satisfied. This, this futility is within ourselves as well. Solomon knows that there's this continual pursuit that goes on and on, and then all of a sudden individuals, whole generations just pass away, and he's saying, what profit was there in any of that? Someone might object. Well, we try to leave the world a better place for those after us. Right? We'll try to improve some things for the time we have here. Well, Paul and Solomon has something to say about this. Verse 9, What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. Now, this idea of nothing new, people might point to inventions to say, that's, see, there's new inventions, there's new things. Try to maybe discredit or get around this statement. Uh, Solomon, I would submit to you, is very aware of technological development. Uh, he's Solomon after all. He's brilliant. That's not really the thing that he has his sights on when he says this. Although there is a sense in which many of our new technologies are just kind of repackaged improvements of other I I even saw somebody pointed out, uh, you know, what is a machine gun, if not just a very sophisticated and complex and more deadly rock thrower, was one comment. Which, if you think of it that way, yeah, okay, it is kind of an object that's been done before. Uh, But but technological development is not really what, what he's after here. The reason that this statement catches us is because of the assumption of great progress the assumption of our own greatness and the greatness of our own age and our own empire. In our time, we think we're so, so very clever. And we look back on those who've come before us with tremendous disdain and with absolutely zero tolerance for their shortcomings, the ones that we deem to be particularly bad. Uh, We have technological sophistication and so assume progress in every area. It's an unmerited assumption. And that's why this, very, this statement hits us between the eyes. It stops us to consider this assumption and claim of progress more closely. And Solomon reminds us that so much of what is supposedly new and brilliant and great is really just repackaged. As one writer says in their new guise, the old ways go on. And if you think about what so many think is brilliant and, and, and would call progress today is is nothing of the sort. I mean, you, you examine some of these things from a biblical worldview and, and, and just a, a even cursory understanding of history and you can see this. I mean, you think of you know, the environmentalism and the green movement and all that it represents today. I mean, it's 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 earth worship is what it, it is. It's earth worship. It's yes, this brilliant progress is a return to worshiping creation itself. You know, the, how, tell us about this progress. Like the Bible condemns this very clearly. Romans one shows us this is is classic idolatry. It's a it's paganism is what it is. It's worshiping creation instead of the creator who stands outside of it I mean there's a, I remember seeing a, a, a tour, there's a UN climate change uh, conference in Europe somewhere and, uh, and and someone is walking through the public area and there's an altar, a shrine where people were making offerings and it was, there's pictures, religious imagery and stuff, it's, it's paganism is all it is, so all this progress and we're just, it's worshipping the earth this is just one area, uh, what people tout as economic and and political greatness these days. I mean, if you just examine the last hundred years, you'll see this is not greatness. And this is, these are very bad ideas that have resulted in many millions of dead people. There's nothing new under the sun, especially when we consider human nature. We're not improving it. We're not improving it. The golden age, the utopian society, it never arrives and it's not going to arrive. Well, maybe there's nothing new, but at least people will remember us, right? We can leave a legacy. We leave a legacy behind. Well, verse 11, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Solomon says there, refers to former and later things. Certainly, he's talking about people, about generations. He's reminding us of the fact that we forget I mean, how many of us here even know our great-grandparents' names? And if we know that, you might be among the minority, and then what else can we say about our great-grandparents? What do we know about them, really? Some of them accomplish some pretty amazing feats. Even those few people who do get remembered often have their own views and accomplishments picked over and often just discarded out of hand. Uh, there's, uh, in 2008, there was a, a report that one fifth of teenagers in the UK thought that Winston Churchill was a fictional character, but who thought Sherlock Holmes and King Arthur were historical. So one, one of the, the, the men who is like a titan of 20th century politics, uh, Winston Churchill, uh, a major figure in the UK's own history, uh, just 60 years later after his time of service and, and, and a fifth of the teenagers think he's a, a myth, but these other figures like Sherlock Holmes are are legit. And so if the other 80% of teenagers can recognize he's historical, how many of them understand his significance or what he did and so on? My point simply is that Even those whose names might go on and be remembered, still really what they've accomplished and done are not really remembered. There's no remembrance of former things. And so if you're searching out meaning and significance in the grand scheme of things, consider that just a short while after you die and possibly even before that, nobody will have a clue who you were. Derek Kidner writes, as for pinning our hopes on posterity, in the end, posterity will have lost the faintest memory of us. The odd name gets remembered through history, but the vast majority of human beings who have walked this earth have died and been completely forgotten. You couldn't find information about them if you tried. And with some, you might get a name. But that's it. This is the way it has been. This is the way it is now. And he says, this is the way it will always be. When generations come, they'll be forgotten by those who come after them. That's what he's saying there at the end of verse 11. So again, within this... You and I take our place. This repetitive cycle, generation comes and generation goes, very little to show for it, not remembered, nothing new really taking place. Then again, what about my individual contribution to all of this? If we as an entire generation will accomplish nothing, what about me? In the grand scheme of it all, what do we gain at the end of our days? Do you feel the weight of this? Uh, Do you sense the loneliness of what is described? The futility of endless labor and toil in the grand scheme? Do you see the, the vaporous nature of life? As I said earlier, this text does not give us good news. It gives us a wound. And actually if we were to keep going, he would then just pour salt in that wound for a little while before he gives us much of a reprieve within Ecclesiastes. And yet if these words wound, they are the faithful wounds of a friend. This is something that's healthy for us to consider and to think about. It is a wounding with the intent to heal, like a doctor who's got to re-break a bone in order to set it properly. As I said last week, one of the, One of the things that Ecclesiastes does for us is it helps prepare us to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. It does this by making us face the realities of living in a fallen world. And so right out of the gate here, we're reminded of the fleeting nature of life, that you and I, along with everyone in our generation, will die. And our overall impact on everything is basically nothing. Very minimal. The world itself that we inhabit is in bondage to sin. We read last week uh, in the service from Romans 8, verses 18 and following, where Paul talks about the creation being subject to futility by God as a result of the fall. The world we live in is in bondage to, to sin because of sin. And humanity is unable to explain, find satisfaction in or alter it. And so this passage screams for a solution to this. Can this really be it? Uh, What is the point then? And, And if we don't look out into eternity, if we don't look to Christ, there is no answer to it all and there is nothing but despair. And Solomon will, he will point out into eternity. He will point out to when we stand before the Lord. And what he sees in part, the New Testament scriptures proclaim more fully that the Lord Jesus Christ has come in the form of man to bring redemption from this curse, this curse of sin. This very curse that brings about all of this futility. Sin is personal. That is, each individual, each son or daughter of Adam has violated God's law and will answer to God for this. Sin is personal. And yet it has also had a cosmic effect as earth itself was cursed and subjected to futility. Again, that's what Paul talks about in Romans 8. That's exactly what is being described here in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Jesus, of course, has come. He has died on the cross for sinners. He has risen from the dead that all who repent of their sins, place their faith in him, may be graciously, as a gift of God's grace, graciously forgiven and granted eternal life. This life is a vapor. Eternal life through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is the answer. The promise that God extends to guilty sinners stuck in this sin-cursed world with our own sin is that through faith in Jesus you'll be clothed in the righteousness of Christ while your sins are wiped away and you'll be made citizens of God's kingdom and yet as those believing this citizens of Christ's kingdom we still live in a fallen world Christ's kingdom did not come in all of its fullness when he came the first time. This is why we've, you know, we've spoken of this before as the now and not yet. His kingdom has come in part. We enter into it through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet we await the fullness of his kingdom to come in the future. But for the time being, for now, the Lord Jesus has ascended to the Father's right hand, where he intercedes for those whom he died to save, for those who believe. And so as his church, we are commissioned to take the gospel to the nations, to proclaim salvation in his name, that those who believe might be forgiven, might become children of God and enter into his kingdom now. But we continue on in the rhythm described in Ecclesiastes. This is our world that is still fallen. So it is true that still As we consider all of history in the grand scheme of things, our contribution may be very, very minimal. We will almost certainly be forgotten very quickly when we pass from the scene. We will still pass with our generation if the Lord delays, and this is still something that we need to reckon with. not find things to just kind of play, you know, just cover over this so we might ignore it, but to reckon with this. Of course, in light of eternity, not all is despair. There is meaningful work and service to be done along the way precisely because of what comes after life under the sun. So even though we'll be forgotten by posterity and that remains true, we can accept it and still live our lives unto the Lord. This is what Paul is saying as he's pointing us, we we read, sorry, what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 15, which was read earlier, as he's talking about the end when Christ will return, he's pointing us to remember that, to look ahead to that, to hope in the return of Christ. And he closes the chapter by saying that our work is not in vain, our work in the Lord. And so, just one example of accepting this. Uh, there's the the saying that I believe goes back to uh, Zinzendorf, if you know who that is. This is saying that gets repeated amongst many gospel ministers is preach the gospel, die, be forgotten. That was his advice. I mean, that doesn't sound uh, that amazing. But preachers can and should be content with this. This is, this is, this is owning the wisdom of Ecclesiastes, what Solomon is pointing out to us teaches us this is not only an acceptable thing to say but something to be very content with and yet this sort of thing is not just for preachers if all believers would fully maybe more fully accept the reality of life in this fallen world with all its limits its boundaries its frustrations its brevity our inability to take gain with us the very the likelihood of being completely forgotten as we make peace with this We all can learn to be more content with our place in this fleeting world, with the lives that God does choose to give us, whatever that might look like, whatever that might bring, because we look out beyond life under the sun. And so if your job doesn't seem to have cosmic significance, we can relax because we're not ever going to really have that kind of significance. again as we read from 1 Corinthians 15 earlier in its beautiful portrayal of the believers ultimate hope the final resurrection when the lord jesus returns in glory to establish the fullness of his kingdom when he comes to resurrect believers and give imperishable bodies to those he has saved when he finally and completely puts death to death forever It is then that the futility of the earth itself will be abolished. And as Paul says again in Romans 8, speaking of creation, it will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The new heavens and the new earth will see the futile cycles of generations coming and going, put to an end, And it is the Lord Jesus Christ who accomplishes this. This can truly settle a soul, especially when we live in uncertain and very aggravating and frustrating times. If things improve or don't improve, what Solomon is saying here in Ecclesiastes 1 is is still true. We're going to die. We are going to be forgotten. But our hope is the Lord Jesus Christ. And one day he will put an end to this cycle. And he will bring about his kingdom in fullness. And we will dwell forever with the Lord. Again, this hope can free you to live this life now in contentment. And to even joyfully go to your grave with no great fanfare. So place your hope in the Lord Jesus. Renew your hope in him. If it's dwindled, if you've been pursuing pleasure in this world and it just continually seems out of reach and too much hope and pleasure is found in the things of man here, renew your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ in his kingdom now and forevermore. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we again thank you for your word and for its raw honesty about life under the sun. We thank you for the answers it does provide. Though there's much we don't understand and know, you've not left us without light. We know that this world is the way it is because of sin. And we know that the only hope is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that our best efforts as we preach the gospel and We try to speak truth everywhere we can. We will not be the ones to bring about a utopian future. Father, our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the one who will return and restore all things. Father, we thank you that you sent your son to die for sinners. That through faith in him, we can be pardoned of our transgression and clothed in his righteousness. Father, I pray for each one of us that we would, that you would just give us each, all that we need. Father, for those who are perhaps already feeling discouraged, that they would find great encouragement and hope in Christ and in the, the, the new heavens and new earth and all that yet awaits us. For those of us who are on the treadmill trying to find some sort of significance, ultimate significance where we ought not to find it, I pray that we would get off of it. I pray that we would rejoice in Christ and live our lives with a sense of calmness and purpose as we seek to know you more and point people to you. We thank you for this church. Thank you that we can be together and gather and hear your word and have fellowship and sing praises to you. We thank you for your wisdom. We ask you to help us with all of our needs. In Jesus' name, amen.